Hey, this is Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, bringing you yet another week of Focus on Metal. Hopefully all you guys are dealing well with our worldwide shitstorm, but uh, here to bring you a little bit of relief as this week we have two great guests. First off, we talk with Joe Flint. He is the vocalist of Atlanta's own Asphalt Valentine. And back in uh, 2009, they put out their first album, Strip Rock and Roll, and it's funny, I was looking through the discogs and I saw the cover and I was like, oh, damn it, I actually have that album. Totally forgot. I guess that is the downside of having a crap load of music around. And I had another one after that called Into the Red, which I don't have. But uh, Joe was on the show this week to talk to us all about what uh, Asphalt Valentine is doing, including talking about their all-new release, Twisted Road, which is funny. I look at the cover for Twisted Road and it reminds me a lot of a CD that uh, my band put out in the in the late 80s just cuz the the whole kid on the uh on the old uh, ride on and then we had an album art that was kind of similar to that one that CD but anyways that's uh, what we have up first is uh, Joe Flint from Asphalt Valentine and then after that, kind of uh, one of our an oddball thing, we're going to be talking to uh, Mike Mostart, who is the uh, CEO and founder of Go Go Tuners, but also uh, he, you know writes music, publishes music, all that good stuff. One of those music insiders, always interesting to talk to. So that's who we have. After that is a good conversation with Mike. And so you're probably saying, what the hell does the Greg Renoff ID at the front of the show mean? Well, nothing much except the fact that, uh, you know, Greg's a buddy of ours, talked a lot about their last book, which was awesome about Van Halen. And he's back again with another VH-themed book coming out at the tail end of April, I think April 27th. It's titled Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. So I'm thinking that if you liked his Van Halen Rising book, you're probably going to like this one as well, because, you know, Ted, he was pretty much that creative force behind those first few VH albums, and I, for one, cannot wait to read this book, and I'm hoping that we also are able to get uh, Greg on the show as well to kind of give us a rundown, talk about the making of the book, maybe give us some stories as well. But that book is available for pre-order right now up on Amazon. And I think that you can also go to the publisher's website as well. And I believe it's available on ECW Press. And I think that coming up soon, if we all watch the uh, emails, I think it's going to show up on a VH Store as well. So again, be on the lookout for that one there. Ted Templeman, you know, 470 some odd pages of more Van Halen tales. And uh, I, like I said, I can't wait to get this one and probably read the whole thing in, in one weekend. In fact, I wish I had it in my hands right now because, you know, every day it looks closer and closer to having uh, a shelter in place order put around us. And that would be another great one to bide the time as I'm sitting here. But anyways, what do you say we uh, get down to business this week and uh, first off, listen to Richie's chat with Joe Flint from Asphalt Valentine. Hey, uh, Richie, this is Joe from Asphalt Valentine. How you doing? Good, how are you doing? I'm very good. Where are you? You're in Atlanta, Georgia? That right, I am. Okay. Um, so I've been, I'm looking forward to this because... Until last week, I'd never heard of you guys, okay? So I get sent a lot of new music, and I'm sure you get you probably get this a lot yourself, and you've experienced it yourself. Um, there's so much music out there now that it's very hard to find the music that's great because you just don't have the time invested to listen to all of it. Um, I think before with the music industry, it used they used to funnel down all the stuff. So all the good stuff was the stuff that got released. And I'm really happy that I actually found you guys because I really do like the sound you have. It's old school rock music. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we, we're straightforward, hard rock. And uh, we do have a lot of the elements of the old school. Um, I think we have a bit of some modern... Uh, you know, melodies to us as well. But to, to get back to what you're saying, I, I, I completely agree with you. 
Um, if you ever listen to uh, Eddie Trunk, he, he always has a saying that, um, you know, the good thing about music today is anybody can make a record, you know, with the technology you have. And in and the same token, the bad thing is, is anybody can make a record. So you know how difficult it is for, for you in the, in the radio industry to discover new music. And, and that also trickles to all the fans out there as well, that they, they have a lot of, of, of music coming at them. So it, it, it's difficult to, to find stuff that they, they really like. Mm. So how do you tackle that? Are you just road dogs that you just want to play live all the time to get out there? Or are you of the, you have the inclination where you say, right, we really have to tackle the social media aspect of it. Well, I think uh, there's both of them are very important. Um, being a road dog, we used to do that in our earlier days, but you have to understand that, you know, the, the guarantees aren't what they used to be. So, um, you know, if you're traveling in a van getting 10 miles to the, to the gallon, it's, it's really tough to, to, you know, uh, make a buck. And as for the most part, you're actually losing money when you're doing that. So you kind of have to be, you know, have some sense and, and, and do that the right way. But, you know, the social media, you know, you really have to tackle that as well and, and, and be present and, um, you know, just you know, do as much posting as you can and, and, and let fans know uh, what you're doing. But you, you can't give up on, on either of them. You, you kind of have to have a balance between the two. Hmm. Now I was reading the bio of the band, and it says you got signed in the early two thousands. And when I listened to your type of music, that was probably the most unfashionable music to produce in the early two thousands. Around that time, it was a lot new metal. There was rap metal, and you guys are coming out with, you know, straight ahead rock music. And unless you're like a band like Aerosmith, who's got a pedigree, it's going to be very difficult to get signed. Was it difficult to get signed in the beginning? Well, um, you know, to get signed to the indie label, I don't think it was that difficult because um, we we actually established a pretty decent following here in in the uh, Atlanta area in the southeast. So um, we were making some noise, and back then was the MySpace days. We actually, you know, we had a lot of fans on MySpace, and, and if you looked at our our uh, record player on MySpace. I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of listens. So for somebody to to sign us, I don't think was all that difficult back then. It was just kind of a anomaly because, you know, once you had that social media bringing a lot of people together, you realize that even though we weren't as fashionable as the mainstream might see you, we're still a niche that there's a lot of people out there like it. Hmm. I think around that time, a lot of the '80s bands started to do the the package tours as well. So there was there was a resurgence, or a little bit around that time. But you really had to pair up all the bands, and all those bands had a pedigree as well. But I'm I'm sure back then it, it was difficult to 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 get anywhere in the beginning. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's still difficult. Uh, you know, it, you still have to work really hard and. Um, and, and like you said, that your first point is that there's so much music out there. You know, we really have a lot of competition. So all we can do as a band is try to write the best songs that we can and make them sound as good as possible on the record for, for the listeners to enjoy. Mm. Now, there's, there's other bands I've interviewed, n- newer bands, that have a similar kind of a sound to yours. I'm thinking of a band called Dirty Honey. Um oh, yeah. I think but there is there does seem to be a resurgence in your type of music around now, and I don't know if it's because a lot of the older bands are are you know they're they're finishing the likes of I know Motley Crue are back and and Air, but Aerosmith are all in their seventies and I think there's a lot of younger fans now that might like those bands that maybe they're looking for the newer type of bands now with that sound. I completely agree with you. I I think at the end of the day. You know, somebody's going to listen to it and and decide. You know, that really is good music. You know, and a lot of the the, the kids today, they had you know uh, their parents grew up listening to this stuff, so they're exposed to it. And um, you know, I I don't think it ever really went away. 
there, there is really a market out there for it. It's just becoming back a little bit more mainstream, and and, and bands like Dirty Honey are definitely helping to to bring it out. And uh, you know, we we hope that it explodes back like it used to be because that would be you know nothing but great for us and bands like us. Hmm. Now, one of the things it says in your bio is that you didn't release your debut record until 2008. Um, getting signed in the early 2000s and having that big of a gap, do you think that hurt you? Um, well, it, I'm not sure that, that that really hurt us there. When we formed in the early 2000s, we were more of a different incarnation of the band, so we kind of evolved. Um, so you know, we weren't always the band name Asphalt Valentine then. So I don't think that really hurt us because we didn't really become the name Asphalt Valentine up until maybe a few years before uh, the release of that first record. But we were pretty much together as the same band. So kind of a reincarnation of ourselves. Hmm. And then, of course, you started this record in 2015. And then, and then you stopped. What prompted you to leave? Well, you know, after 2015, we had some lineup changes. And when you go through that as a band, um, it, it just really retards the uh, ability to move forward because somebody new joins the band. Like uh, our drummer left, moved away. We had to show the new drummer all the new stuff and and, uh, you know, get him up to speed and back playing. And then, you know, we had a guitar player lineup changes. So all that, it, it gets a little frustrating, um, you know, when you're when you're trying to move forward and, and this, these lineup changes keep happening. But, um, you know, all the while, uh, you know, we can sit there and, and I will still write music. So we didn't really start the record in 2015. I would say we started it more a year, year and a half ago, with the main focus being in the last 12 months on the record. So uh, we had a lot of the material written, and so that when we were ready to really go forward with it, um, you know, we could knock it out. Mm. When, when you went on hiatus, did you leave on good terms with the rest of them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, nobody, we, we didn't fire anybody. Everybody leaves on their own. Uh, and it's and it's more the fact that, you know, they moved to a different state and it's just not, you know, feasible. You know, with, with our drummer moving to uh, um, uh, Florida and here we're here in Georgia, you know, you can't really do remote with a drummer. Our guitar player now, he lives in San Francisco and we're here in Georgia, but, you know, with the way that you can file share, uh, you know, with guitars, it's a lot easier to do that. So, um, you know, as technology grows, it's, it's easier when people move away. You don't really have to, you know, give anything up. But, of course, it's a little bit difficult to play the shows that you want to play because you can't just run out and say, oh, we got a local gig we got offered here in Atlanta. Let's go play it. You know, well, our guitars player's going to fly 3,000 miles to you know, come do the gig. So, mm. you know, we got to think about those things, too. Yeah. Joe, Joe what's, your, what's your take on technology? I mean, I mean, you brought it up, so I'm going to go there. What, you guys are like two guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Very simple. Um, yeah. The music is probably conducive to you guys playing live and recording in the same room, and yet you have to go the file-sharing route to do it. Um, yep. It, that, that to me seems a little bit at odds with what the sound of your band. I'm, I'm sure you'd probably love to do it the other way where you're all in the same room, but you just, you just can't do it. Well, yeah, we, we couldn't uh, all the time. There were certain times that we could do it. You know, when we were doing some, we had live shows and then our guitar player would fly in. Um, you know, and we would record around that. We have our own recording studio where we practice, so we do everything uh, as far as the recording process uh, in-house. So we're all in the same room for the most part, and we all can give the feedback and and uh, and go over that. Now, when it comes to the final product, we ship it out to our uh, producer, Andy Riley, who has been around for, for years and years and years um, and worked with some some you know, really great artists like Bon Jovi and Bruce Dickinson. And um, he's been our go-to guy for years. And uh, so he does all the 
all the editing and the polishing and, and, and everything like that. We'll do all the pre-production. So I think for the most part, we are in the same room. Mm. So, so Joe, what changed for you guys to get back together? Was it one thing or was it a couple of different things that the, the stars aligned and, and it just worked out? Yeah, I, it, it, I think it was, it was more one thing. Um, you know, we were on the, on the cusp of, you know, almost really not doing anything and maybe just putting out a song here or two. Um, you may not be aware, but uh, one of our guitar players uh, did pass away in in uh, 2018, and that really hurt us bad. Uh, he'd been with us for five years and one of my best friends, and, um, you know, we were kind of silent. And uh, there's a, a friend of mine band here in Atlanta. They're called Kickin' Valentina. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but they're no. a singer. Yeah, their singer had abruptly quit on them uh, when they were supposed to play some festivals in, in Germany and whatnot. Now, while I couldn't go over to Europe with them, uh, they needed some dates filled, and they asked me to do it. And, uh, you know, I just remembered how much I missed being in the van and on the road and, and uh, you know, playing live shows out of state. And that really kind of got the juices flowing for me. So I got back and I said, you know, we're not going to do this one or two song thing and, and just, you know, not play much. We're going to go full force and, and do this again, because I think the material is good and, and, and we can really do this right. Mm. Joe, is it easy to keep the same sound with all the different lineup changes? Well, I, I think so, because I, I write probably about 80% of the material. Uh, at least it starts, out is riff for me and um you know our our other guitar player uh he's our rhythm guitar player who really helps me write he has a certain style um and, and our bass player who's been there since the beginning so the core of us are really the you know the song creators so i the, the style doesn't really change unless you know i or one of us who have been in the band so long wants it to change Mm. So, so what are you looking for in the future now? I, do you want to try and get on a, a bigger tour, or do you want to just maybe go out yourselves with maybe a band at your level and, and, and play a lot of different shows? Like, wh what way do you want to tackle that? What would be the ideal situation for you? Well, ideal situation, you know, obviously is playing the, the biggest shows that, that we can get invited to play, but we'll, we'll, we'll tackle anything because we, we want to get out there and play. Um, we've got, uh, you know, touring bands on our label that we can package up with. Um, and, and we're excited to do that. Uh, so, you know, basically, you know, if we can put a package together with, with the bands on our label and we get invited to do some, some maybe, uh, some bigger shows, that, that's how we want to do it. You know, we want to get to be playing, you know, 30, 40, 50 shows, a, you know, a year and, uh, you know, just do as much as we can. Hmm. Joe, how many of you guys have the music business as their livelihood? Uh, would scheduling be difficult if something like that came around, but you, you were booked for a lot of shows? Well, we, we've done it before. Uh, it, it's not our only, you know, source of income. Um, so, but a lot of us have been where we are now in our careers that we can make adjustments if need be. So we, we, we that's always in the back of our, our minds. I mean, we, we've been out on the road for a month and a half at one time before, and, uh, you know, we've all made it. Mm. So. so, Joe, what was the hardest song to write on the record? Oh... You know, on the record, I would say the hardest song to write was um, probably the song called Shamefully. And that is because it was a reincarnation of a song that we had for 13 years that I had written 13 years ago. And we never did anything with it. And so why it was difficult, because you have this song, you know, it has some great potential to it, but things just aren't working out with it. So you have to go back to it, sit down with it, figure out and dissect it, what's wrong with it, and, and try to change those parts. And, and once you can do that, uh, I think it turned out really great. Mm. And what's your favorite song on the album? Don't say all uh, of them. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite song is a song called Rain, uh, and it's, it's 
to me, it's a very dynamic song. It's, it, it starts out pretty heavy, fast riffs to it. Uh, I would say almost kind of power metal y. And then, uh, you know, it, 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 it tones down on the, um, on the verse and very uh, melodic and bass driven. And then it just comes in ripping with some really hard rock, you know, guitar licks to this very melodic chorus. It's very, it, 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 it's a roller coaster and it really takes you on this, uh, you know, dynamic uh, uh, song. So that that's my favorite one. Mm. Joe, how would you define success now? Because it's not record sales anymore. Is actually making the record that's a success for you? Yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna do. We're always gonna put out music because we we just really enjoy doing it. That's why we've been together for so long. Um, you know, quitting was not an option because we. It's just in our nature to. Uh, put music out and only put it out when we are happy with with the product you know we're not just going to put anything out there and 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 hope it does well we always hope our music does well but you know we understand that that record sales aren't where they where they are and that's really going to be difficult for us so um you know uh, a success is just you know knowing that you know we have fans out there they're really enjoying the music and that um you know it's they're enjoying it enough to where we can go out and play some live shows and, and, and go meet the fans. Mm. Well, Joe, before I leave you go, I, I'm really glad I found you guys because I love your sound. I love your singing. Um, I lo- I, I'm a big 80s. I got into metal and hard rock in the 80s. So all that is my is my era. And it's great to see that there's, you know, there's other bands out there that are still, you know, playing that type of music. Yeah, well, we're we're right up your alley then because that's exactly what we are. Yeah. So, Joe, do you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you by the by the album? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, number one, we're we're primarily most active on Facebook, so it's just uh, uh, Facebook dot com slash asphalt valentine and then we do have a uh um a com website asphaltvalentine.com and just for the reminders of the listeners our new album twisted road is coming out on uh february 28th but today uh on um valentine's day you can get the pre-order at high volume music hvmmusic.com which is the uh, CD and t-shirt bundle for the pre-order. Nice. All right, Joel, I'll leave you get back to work then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care. If you get up to Boston area, hopefully I can get back and say hello to you at a show. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, well, it's, it's, it's funny because, uh, I've, I've never been to Boston and, and my wife wants to go. She wants to take our son because she thinks it would just be real cool to go see all the historic sites and I would too. So if I'm up that way, I'll let you know. Yeah. All right, Joe, take care of yourself. Have a good weekend. Bye. All right. Bye. And that was Richie's conversation with Joe Flint from Asphalt Valentine. And if you're uh, curious about uh, all of that, you can definitely go up to, uh, of all places, of course, Amazon. And the uh, Twisted Road album is up there along with some other stuff. And you can even get some streaming Asphalt Valentine going as well. But up next, we're talking to uh, Mike Mostert from GoGo Tuners. And if you're not familiar with GoGo Tuners, uh, they've been around for a while. And one of their their big claims to fame, of course, is they have one of the largest screens out there, which is always awesome. I had a pedal uh, years back when I was playing that had a nice large screen so that on stage you could see what the hell it said for a note. And uh, I don't know, I think the thing got stolen or whatever, but I really missed that one. But when I look at the GoGo Tuners, it definitely reminds me of that pedal. And if you're like me, you just cannot have enough tutors as it is. In fact, even in the studio rack here, I have one of the uh, one of the granddaddies of them all, one of the classics from the '80s rack systems, the uh, Korg DTR. Love that thing. But you also love to get ones in pedals, and I just it's so damn convenient. I can remember back in the day, not even having any kind of tuner like that, and this just it's almost like cheating. But anyways, I'm going to be talking to Mike today. Uh, mostly about you know what he's been doing in music, and uh, we'll be getting into a little release he put out at the end of last year called uh, the Go Go Tuner Family. And Michael get into what that is all about, but uh, that is uh, available as well. You check that one out, and I also urge you to check out some uh, Go Go Tuners as well. The new Go Go Horizon is pretty cool because the whole thing. 
you know, besides having a big display and showing you the note that you're going to be tuning to, if you're if you're off, the whole thing kind of is bathed in red, and when you're in, the whole thing is bathed in green. So, uh, really cool tuner. But enough about me starting to geek out about digital tuners. What do you say that uh, we listen to what Richie and Mike have to talk about? How you doing there, Richie? Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing good. So, where 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 exactly are you? I'm in Muscle Shoals. Okay. So one of the questions I have before we get into the record, um, I was looking at your Facebook page and you had a picture of your your dad's guitar that's 60 years old. Um, was that your first guitar? No, it was uh, it was my well, it was my dad's. Really, it was my dad's first guitar. Um, if you saw that on Facebook, it was mm-hmm. the, uh, the first thing he purchased with his first paycheck when he came to uh, America. And, you know, it was dad's guitar. So, you know, you can look at it, but you can't play it. Okay. So he, w- he, wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't let you play it out when you wanted to learn in the beginning? No, but they gave me a guitar, uh, a nylon string guitar, when I was about five or six years old. And I think they wanted me to, to follow in the footsteps of, uh, like I said, Govia. Um, that's why it was a nylon string guitar, but um, that wasn't, <laughs> that part of it was not my forte. Uh, but yeah, I started when I was like five or six on a, on a nylon, and then um, I think it's, it's always cool. I, you know, I had an older my, I had an older brother, but who's uh, who was killed actually in '92 in, in a car accident. Um, but he was a bass player, and he was he was about three years older than me. And and you know, at that age, when you're eight, nine, ten, eleven, their very your your older brother, three years makes such a big difference. So when he got into like Kiss and Angel and Rush and all that those bands at you know Pink Floyd and I was ten years old, eleven years old, and um, so he, he was definitely very influential and started trying to get into uh, like you know rock music. Mm. So who who are your big influences then when you were growing up, guitar wise? Uh, uh, guitar wise, I always had this one random one that uh, no one's <laughs> no one. Um, I mean, I love like that band Triumph. You ever hear that band Triumph? Oh yeah, the Canadian band. Yeah. Um, and I reckon it was such early on. When I'm, I'm talking about like 13, 14 years old. He was definitely one of my guys, and of course Jeff Beck was definitely one of my guys. Um, you know, always, you know, Jeff Beck is always in the top. Um, who else? Um, Al Miola as well was another one. When I was, in my, you know, fourteen, fifteen years old. Um, you know, and that's really just at that point of uh, Michael Shanker. I keep, I always keep forgetting Michael Shanker. He's definitely one of my bigger guys. Um, you know, Brian May. Um, the list goes on. Mm. <laughs> There's so many. I've, uh, um, I've, I've, did you ever get an opportunity to meet any of them at Nam? Because I know you've been doing Nam now for a while. No. Um, not really at NAM. It's, it's funny. I got to meet a lot of guys. Um, you know, who actually weren't, weren't my heroes, but just you know, great guitar players or guitar legends, so to speak. Um, you know, when I was doing you know the uh, the tuner company, the GoGo Tuner Company, and um, being exposed to all those guys, um, that that's been a, a very cool experience. A lot, a lot of great guitar players that, that I never heard of, and then. They mentioned, you know, okay, this guy's, you know, like Tom Bresh, or even getting to see like the Vince Gill live, or when I brought in Johnny Highland, um, the country chicken picker. I'm not sure if you know who Johnny is. No. Okay, Johnny's he's uh, he's on, on two songs on the record as well, um, but he's considered one of the best guitar players on the planet, um, and he's this larger than life, very gregarious guy, um, and he's he's legally blind. You know, I mean, I, I give this guy so much credit. He came from Maine, and so he gets around like as if he can see, but he's obviously legally blind. And his wife and his friends take him to gigs, and um, but what, I have to say, definitely one of the best guitar players on the planet. And when you see him in Nashville, people just sort of bow down to bow, bow down to him. And um, usually, like you know, you mentioned his name in the guitar world, um, whether it's metal or, or chicken picking. You know, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, John, Johnny's the judge's a beast." And uh, so, um, yeah, there's been so many guys like that. And you know, um, like I said, but the list goes on. 
But uh, that's why I had Johnny on that rec- on that one song. I'm not sure. Did you listen to the entire record or? I only got one song. She's gone. That's oh, the only one I got. Okay. okay. Um, the the entire record just encompasses so many different genres. Because um, part of the record is a uh, a collaboration with my go-go artist. Um, again, I'm not sure what you know on the background, but I own a company called Go-Go Tuners. Mm-hmm. And this whole, this whole thing came about because I have so many high-profile artists in different genres. So originally started off as this collaboration record, uh, but within the record, also a real band developed. And that's like, She's Gone... Um, you know, can't find my way. Um, even the, the the life's a bitch song. That is a you know sort of a real band within the within the record that's also um, you know doing its own thing as, as well as the record. Mm. So, and and that would you know, and the thing is, way back in the uh, in the nineties, so mid nineties, early nineties. Um, the singer of in of the band in theory from She's Gone and Can't Find My Way. Um, and we were signed to EMI, but it was, you know, it was more like eighties hair metal band. And when I started doing this, you know, I was going to do so. What would be, you know, how would I write, you know, a rock song today? And, um, you know, and, and what was our evolution from, you know, from um, like a music palette, like, you know, has other influences creeped in and, um, from those days and, you know, everything, you know, from an emotional standpoint, from a lyrical standpoint, from a music standpoint. And, um, you know, and, and did we evolve from back then? So I, I really didn't want to do what we did back then. It was like, what will we write today? And, uh, that's how, you know, that that came about. And, and I put this rhythm section together up in uh, Nashville when we started rehearsing and, um, that was it. I started doing, you know, she's gone and can't find my way. Mm, well, Mike, there's no shortage of musicians in Nashville, and and all and they're all great. That's that's the thing, mm. <laughs> you know. I've um, um, I, I've interviewed a lot of musicians down there. Uh, Billy Sheen, Kip Kip Winger, Mark Slaughter. Um, who else lives there? Tom Kiefer. Mm-hmm. Um, they've all spoken very highly about all the musicians that actually live there that really aren't names that they're all really really good and it's very easy just to get musicians in to play on stuff yeah it's like Mark Slaughter is definitely he's one of my uh, go-go artists and uh, but he's the guy who I was talking about Johnny Highland he's like one of the biggest Johnny Highland fans um, on the planet like I said anybody in Nashville has to go see Johnny play um, for sure mm. Now, a lot of the names on, on the album, I wouldn't recognize them. Like Jordan Ziff, because I'm the hard rock metal guy, Jordan Ziff I know is in Rash, and Ernie C I know is in Body Count, but would most of the rest of them now be session musicians, or they would, would they be in one band or maybe two bands? No, um, each person is quite different, so depending on the song. So say, like, I have um, Andrew Goucher on there, and like say for Andrew, as far as he, like he's another like legend in, in the gospel bass world. Um, he, and again, yeah, he's he's known for obviously for playing with Prince for a very long time and playing with Michael Jackson, but he's the most recorded um, you know jazz not jazz bass gospel bass player of all time. But if but he's the guy who invented um, that you know what I would say gospel bass before him. It was the organ was doing the bass and he was the first guy. And if you go like in the Rolling Stone, like top hundred, you know, most influential bass players of all time, Goucher will always be in the top 40 of, of, you know, whatever most influential. Um, So even though he is a side guy, let's say like with Prince and those guys, he's just known as being a very influential bass player on, in the bass world period. Um, but everyone else is a little bit different. You take, uh, you know, like a Morgan Miles, and she's uh, a, like a country pop gal. I think she was on um, last year. She was signed to Sony, um, and there's like uh, Phil Uli, and he's a, more of a, a Americana artist um, on a different label. Um, the guy, um, 
What's his name? Um, Fernando Valen. He's in a band called Mana. And I'm sure if you know who they are. Now, he, like, he's not a side but side guy, but he's in a band called Mana. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not sure if you know about Mana, but Mana is the biggest rock band to ever come out of Mexico. They're about the equivalent, of, like, uh, of the Police or the U2, but out of Mexico, they've sold 70 or 80 million records. Wow! And to, to give you the scope of like how big these guys are and still are. They hold the record for selling out Madison Square Garden faster than any band in history. And on this last tour, which was um, maybe five months ago, they sold out the forum nine nights in a row. Wow. Who, who's, who's right? This was in September, October of last year. So the bass player of that group is um, on three of the songs. Okay. So, so everybody, you know, so it's quite different. And, um, say like Lanisha, we did Taking My Heart, which is like an R&B type of song. She's been a singer for Stevie Wonder's band and, and Jennifer Lopez, but mainly she's known for Stevie Wonder's backup singer for 10 years. And when I heard her sing, um, she was doing, originally she was doing backups for a couple of the other tracks. But when I heard her sing, I go, no, you need to be a lead singer, not a backup singer. So I wrote an R&B track with her. And, um, so again, so I'm trying to bring her out as a solo artist and, um, there's been a lot of that where, um, you know, half, half the record is, or part of the record is, I, I feel like go-go artists or, or artists or what they call family, I call them family or, um, that are up and coming, or I think like should be heard. And the others are, are these legends in, in what they do. Yeah, because when, when I looked at some of the names, I'm looking down through the list, and then the names of the bands that some of them are in are popping out to me, and I'm thinking, every time I see something like that, I always think of that Hired Gun movie, where you have all, oh, these, right, right. all, all of these shit-hot musicians that are brilliant players that can come in and nail down a track for any band and any genre. And I'm looking at the names on this, and I'm thinking, you probably had a lot of musicians that are like that. Oh yeah, I mean, take the drummer for instance. Um, you know, I uh, was at that Andy Sinisi on there, and he's a drummer. Like, like talk about like a mishmash of guys, but he's more known for like three key bands, which is Missing Persons, Frankie Valli, and Sebastian Bach. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're talking about three like random genres. Um, but he's that guy. He's like a Swiss Army knife uh, drummer, but he does all those styles. You know, like like you said, kick ass is just at that level. Um, but yeah, pretty much all those guys on it. Like I had one guy, uh, he plays a Bruno Mars and Ed Sheeran. And, um, yeah, I mean, for, it really doesn't get bigger than that for the pop world, you know? So, but yeah. And then those guys can do any style and those are just like, you know, those guys play with so many people, but I just put like highlights of their, you know, their bigger bands. Hmm. Now, did you want to push any of them outside their comfort zone at all? That they might have been known for a specific genre and played that for a long time. And you said, no, I want you to do a, a heavy rock song instead of a pop song or, or something like that. Oh, absolutely. That was actually the majority of the record was like that, except for the, uh, the theory band, you know, um, where that was like a real band. For the most part, I was, I was trying to accomplish that with the entire uh, music collaboration. So like a good example would be, uh, or a couple of good examples would be that Go Go Shred song. And it's like, uh, like you said, I don't, I don't think you've heard the record, right? You always heard She's Gone. Mm-hmm. All right. So there's a song called Go Go Shred. And it starts off with the bass player who's um, sort of like he's a Latin Jaco Pastorius in a way. He's known for Spyro Gyre and Herb Albert. So he's doing like this, very melodic jazz intro funk thing that just goes into like something that you would hear from painkiller from Judas priest. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it's, it, it, it catches the listener off guard. It's like, wow, that, first you hear the bass and you're like, Oh my God, that bass player sounds amazing. And then it goes into like, you know, Scott Travis, like over the top, like double kick. And, um, and, and then on that song, that's always pushing people out of you know, their, their comfort level um, on so many levels. And nobody heard the tracks until they had to do it. That was the other thing I, w- I was doing. So 
Oscar, who's that bass player from, you know, the Spyro Jared guy, he didn't know he was going to do a metal track. I said, I just, he came down, I go, this is track I want you on. And uh, so there was, a, there was a lot of that. And, and again, like on that track, you have Oscar, you have um, Ice-T's, you know, Ernie from Ice-T, you have Jordan Ziff, you have, you know, Johnny the Chicken Picker. Um, I, I would also brought on one of my, you know, up and coming artists, his name's Johnny Blade. Um, really sort of like a Randy Rhodes type of player. Um, but in LA, he's definitely making a mark for himself right now. Uh, in fact, I think he plays in a band with Randy Rhodes' brother right now. And, um, and then I, and then I do the last solo on it. And, um, I think the gods were, were smiling right that night. And I got, I actually hit all the right notes. I was able to bring out my inner shred for one, one night. <laughs> and, um, and so like th- that's, a, that would be a good example or, you take uh, there's a blues song, and but it's sung by this girl, uh, this girl, this woman Morgan Miles, and she's known a little more for like a country pop, you know, like a Taylor Swift, you know. Um, but working with her and working with a lot of my artists in the past, I know she had this third and fourth gear of, of vocals, and she on this track she does like a Janis Joplin type of vocal. She's just like ripping it, you know, like. A, Jazz Joplin or like a Beth Hart, I know she, she knows she is, but um, just, I mean, just tearing up the vocals. There's, a, there's definitely a lot of anger in it, and just, oh my God, the vocals are incredible. But again, you know, from one of my reasons was that it's not to really take him out of the comfort zone. I know that she already had that style, you know. Um, uh, you know, Oscar with those, I already know that he likes metal, and I know that Johnny. You know, he was a chicken picker. He was on Steve Vai's label when he was a teenager. So, but a lot of the fans don't really know that. And, um, but getting back to that blues song, taking a pop singer in which her company put, and you know, it's a blessing and a curse that your record company, you, you know, you will, if you're a country pop person or you're a metal person, they're not going to let you do a blues record. They're not going to let you explore a jazz record they're expecting you to do a metal record. And, and also I think your fans keep you in that box as well. You know, so for, for these, a lot of these artists, it was, uh, I think it was just bringing them back to when they first started playing. It was like such a high level of passion that they got to do these other styles of music that they really love to do. Um, and same thing is safe for like that, uh, that the bass player from Mana. you know, obviously he's known as the, the Latin rock King, you know, in, in the bass world, but to have him play on the blues track or on his ballad, and um, I had and I had him on this one pop song, but it wasn't like how can I make this song more Latin, or how can I make this song, how can I make um, Johnny play more, um, or have Oscar play more metal, or what was it, or that's the best way of putting it. How would you know? How would I make? Um, I wasn't trying to make Oscar play jazz to a metal song. I wasn't trying to get uh, Morgan to sing country pop on that song. It was how would a country pop song approach a Janis Chop blues song? You know, how would um, you know a, a Latin rock bass player approach a, a ballad with the orchestra? Not add a Latin rock element. I think that normally would come out sort of like in the style, but not change the style of the song. It was more of a mindset, if that makes sense. Hmm. You know, like how, how would a rock guy play a blues song? How would a jazz guy play, you know, um, you know whatever, a metal tune? I mean, it was really that. Let me, I just want to mix and match people where they normally wouldn't, wouldn't uh, be heard. Now, Mike, when when you brought them all into the studio, the first question I have on that is, were you were you able to get them all in the studio at the same time to record, or was any of this done over the internet? The majority was done where I'm in the room with them. Um, that was very important for me. I want to be in the room and I want to have an interaction and and, and a reaction opposed to um, just people sending tracks. So for the most part. I'm I'm in the room with everybody. At pretty much 98% of the record, I'm there. Um, as far as the like I said, like the in theory band, yeah, we were there all together. Okay. Um, on like the metal shred song, 
you know, what a combination. It was, you know, myself, Ernie, and the baseball player, Spyro Gyro. We were all together. Um, so, again, it all depends on the track, you know. Um, so, like, where that's, there's a pop song, and on the pop song, um, the rhythm section was together, you know. But but the, all the vocals and guitars were done out in Muscle Shoals in Nashville. Okay. But... Uh, but nobody was really, um, for the most part, flying in tracks or sending in tracks. Um, I want to be there when they did the tracks, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think, because I think the tracks, I think you play different when there's a reaction to the tracks when you're when someone's there with you, opposed to someone like mailing it in, like, okay, here's, send me, you know, here's the, the song, just play your stuff and send it to me, and I'll let you know if I like it or I'll fit it in. I think it'll sound quite different. Yeah, Mike, the other thing I want to ask you about the recording process, and you said there that you you didn't tell any of them what tracks they were playing on until you brought them down. Were any of them, apprehen- right. were any of them apprehensive about playing on the song when you heard it and they went, oh, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm not, you know, not that they weren't comfortable doing it, it was just that they probably didn't expect to be recording on a song like that. No, I don't think, I think actually it was quite the opposite. I think it was, um, I think for them, it was that they got, they got to stretch their, I'm going to say their musical arms out. You know, they, they, they welcomed it. Um, like I said, it wasn't just random where I was picking music or styles of, um, just out of the blue. I was picking styles because I, I've known all these artists for quite a long time and I know what else that they listen to in our, in our conversations. So for me to put this country pop girl, you know, on, on a, um, like a Janis Joplin song made perfect sense for me. So, um, yeah, so I, I don't think anybody was really out of their comfort zone. Hmm. So Mike, what, what's next for a record like this once you release it? Because um, how much of this can you realistically play live? That's a good question. Um, I think for the most part, we could play live. I mean, depending on scheduling, um, the very last song is that would be the most challenging on, on this, uh, to do it live because there's a six, there's a 63 piece cello, uh, section on the very last song. Okay. So to, uh, to so take that out live would be, uh, <laughs> quite challenging. And, and, and I wouldn't want to, I, mean, I wouldn't want to do it on a sample or have keyboards do it. I know it would just wouldn't be the same, you know, as hearing a cello live. Um, but for the most part, I know if I can get the exact lineup, because there's been talk about that. We've been approached about doing the record sort of as sort of like, it's like if you listen to the record from start to finish, it's like a very old school record and, and meaning um, like a Beatle record where you could, take like a healthy skelter and you can put yesterday or you put strawberry field, even though the styles are so different, it just makes sense to the entire record. If that makes sense. Hmm. And, that- and, the, and the record is like that, where it's going from the sound garden, the hard rock track, boom, right into like this, this country track. And then it goes to a pop track. And then, uh, but it's going from genre to genre, but also every note that I, that I picked, uh, where it ended and where it started was carefully chosen as well. And if you put one song out of sequence, the record has a completely different feel. Okay. So anyway, so, anyway, so we were, we were approached, um, to possibly like almost do like go, go, you know, um, the record, you know, so sort of like taking a song one through, through nine of just these different genres, you know? And so it would be almost like a Broadway production type of deal. We have that going on, and then the other thing that's going on is the In Theory band. Is the one that we did, you heard she's gone. Uh-huh. That that's you know in a way blown up by itself. Um, there's been such a strong reaction to that band. Um, you know, to like we said, that was the intention to to have a band within the band, um, or a band within the record. Now that one's become, if you want to say, a, a real band at the end of the day. And we we've done variations since the record, and um, I'm not sure if you know what the um, you know what you know what are you familiar with Muscle Shoals and the history of Muscle Shoals? A little bit. 
Okay. So, you know, in, in this place, it's one of the biggest music cities or well-known music. I wouldn't say biggest, but it's definitely one of the most well-known music cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably been, what, about 2 billion records sold out of this place um, from the mid-60s on. You know, I mean, from, you know, Aretha Franklin, Percy Sledge, to Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner. I mean, this, the list will, will astound you. Like, this goes on and on. How many people had to come here to record? And um, the majority of the records were done by these guys, the Swampers. Um, and it was these five musicians that were doing most of these records. And um, so I it was maybe about four or five weeks ago, I, I was having a singer come down to Muscle Shoals. And we actually did a recording with one of the original Swampers. And he's a keyboardist. And uh, like I said, he was a guy who, if it wasn't for him, Aretha Franklin would have, never made it as crazy as that may have sound. She was not getting any hits and he created that sound for her. And I'm not sure if you are a fan of the, you know, the older style music, but like when a man loves a woman, uh-huh. that's his sound, you know, or Mustang Sally, that's him. You know, he, he's, that's, that's all, you know, the guy named Spooner. So I had this idea, um, instead of, you know, the, known as the swappers, we just call it the swap rats. And I said, to, and the guy's keyboardist's name is Spooner. I go, Spooner, let's take, let's get you, you know, an R&B keyboards with a metal singer with what I do and a cellist from France. And I'm going to do these recordings. And we did some variations of songs that were on the record from the band of Deary. But this, you know, I wouldn't say I made it a little bit more bluesier, but I made it a little bit more swampier. I'm doing a lot of slide work on it. Um, and while the, the cellist is from France and trained for orchestra, his style almost sounds like uh, a little bit more like folky. There's an eeriness almost to how he plays, um, you know, and, and it just ties into, again, it, like, like I said, if you know the history of this place, there's, there's a theory about the Tennessee River. I'm not sure if you know about, you know, anything about that? No. Okay. One of the biggest reasons why people record in Muscle Shoals is because it's right on the Tennessee River and there's folklore that goes back, you know, thousands of years is, and then they call it the Singing River and it goes back, you know, to, um, to, you know, to the Indians, you know, a thousand years ago that lived right on the river and, you know, people swear, you know, you hear, you hear music and it brings out music that you normally that you don't even know that's inside you, but there's something that this river will do to create music um, within you. I mean, like Rolling Stones, they did Wild Horses, and um, you know, Brown Sugar was all done here at Muscle Shoals. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a really great documentary when, and they discuss all this. But um, but there is something about about this. Um, I don't know. You know, they they say it's from the river, just singing river. And there's this really great documentary if you're into history and into music. And they could, they did this whole section of, um, there was a, you know, obviously there used to be a lot of Indians on the river here. And in the 1890s or 1900 or so, when they were bringing Indians into the reservations, they moved the Muscle Shoals Indians to Oklahoma. And there was a, a woman that walked back from Oklahoma back to Muscle Shoals. It took her five years. She could not hear the, she could not hear the music. Uh, but she wanted to get back to hear the music. And then her great-grandson made a tribute. There's a wall right on the river. And he built hand-built this wall. It's probably over a billion records. Um, and there's no mortar, no nothing. You know, he had, he's just has to find the rocks within the river and, uh, sort of made his, his own tribute wall. And he's probably about 75, 80 right now or so. Um, but it's a tribute to, you know, his, um, ancestors or more, more importantly, his, uh, his grandmother, um, who again, was traveled five years because she could not hear music anymore. Wow. And, wow. and and if you like I said, if you watch the documentary, it'll blow your mind. Um, just no matter if it's Bono or Paul McCartney or Steven Tyler, they say they come here, they go to the studios, and when it's called Fame, they they actually cry. You know, they, of there's just something, and, and that that's the best way of describing it. There was like a great interview with Steven Tyler 
um, which is a studio called here Fame, and Fame is really the bigger of the studios, or honestly, bigger, the most known. And that's where like Eddie James did At Last, and um, you know a lot of her hits Aretha. Mm-hmm. And so for Stephen Tyler to be in that room, he said he just touched the wall and he started crying. Wow! Uh, like he, he, he could feel the energy of all the people that recorded before him. And, and again, it's not all, you know like you said, if you see interviews with Paul McCartney and Bono and Leonard Skinner, um, and, and again in all genres, even like the Rival Sons just did their record here. Um, they all talk about this. There's something here that brings out this music in you. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Hmm, that's something I'll definitely have to look up. So, Mike, final question for me. Was there any musicians you wanted to get on the record and for whatever reason they couldn't play on it? Um, I would have to say yes and no because I have still about 125 artists on my roster. Um, and everybody's given me a resounding yes to do it. So there will be volumes two and three and four. Okay. It's just going to be a matter of everybody's uh, scheduling to pull it off. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be getting to everybody and, um, and hopefully it gets better as, as I, you know, start, uh, as I start evolving as a better producer as well. And, um, it definitely pushed me to, to my limits as a producer on this thing. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, there'll, there'll be some surprises already on volume, if you want to call it volume two, but that's going to come after we start this, um, like I said, the in theory record, mm-hmm. you, know, you guys have been, which you've played, um, and that we actually start recording, uh, April 10th. Okay. And, um, yeah, I think that'll be a little bit more a departure. It'll, it'll sound like how the in theory sounds on the record. But we're taking it back even a little bit more old school. It's almost like like a modern Zeppelinish type of vibe to it. Nice. So it's almost if you take like a if I, best I can describe it. If you take Soundgarden meets old school Zeppelin with the Muscle Shoals R and B magic to it and put it all together, that's what it's going to be. Nice. So, so Mike, where can people get the get the record? And you want to give out all the social media sites where people can get in touch with you. Oh yeah, you can just go to our um, our Facebook page on GoGo Tuners. You can go to Instagram on GoGo Tuners. Um, it's available on any any and every digital platform out there. So if you want to go on iTunes and Spotify and Google Play, it's everywhere. Okay. All right, Mike. Well, I'm going to leave you go. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's great speaking with you as well. And you know, thanks for the support and thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. When that interior record comes out, maybe I'll come back around and get you on to promote that. Oh, that'd be great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. All right, Mike. Have a good rest of the day. You too. All right. Bye. All right, Metalheads, that is uh, Richie's chat with Mike Mostard. As I said, uh, check out GoGo Tuners and obviously go up and uh, see if you can get yourself a copy of Mike Mostart and the GoGo Tuner family. So in the usual vein, once again, not really sure what the hell we're doing next week, but with so many of the release dates that were announced uh, about getting moved up even you know, a month, two months further out, kind of uh kind of changes the landscape a little bit with some of the stuff that we have in the can and uh we'll see what happens next week but it might be possibly if we can pull it all together that richie had this pretty killer idea we had one thing going on and from there he thought you know i think i could one up myself and just create a whole deal out of it and so we are leaning very strongly next week to doing a cozy powell special so not a project. We're not going to do 18 episodes on Cozy Powell. Well, that, that would be pretty cool. But actually just doing a single episode all about Cozy Powell. Got a couple of great interviews in the can already that kind of fit together and pull that theme into a whole thematic hole. And I think if I were to ping Richie right now, he'd be like, yeah, let's do the Cozy Powell thing. So that's probably what's going to go down next week. But again, we have some other things we've been hanging on to that really aren't time-based. So we might want to roll one of those things out instead. You just don't really know, right? But anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as I said last week, man, keep yourself safe. Let's, uh, let's all come out of this thing on the other side healthy, happy, and alive. But uh, until then, 
keep the metal going. Listen to it every day. And until we talk to you again next week, like we always say, remember. Focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.